Well, hello there, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearing House. I'm Brett Chisholm. And I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, we get dark. And I'm talking really dark. In the off top, we talk about the darkest material ever made. I'm not talking about the book I Zombie by Hugh Howie. No, that's for the content piece. I'm talking about the vertically aligned carbon nanotubes, better known as Vantablack, that took the art world by storm. And then we'll get into a book whose pages reflect no light. A piece of content that has inspired more conversation about the human condition than any other content piece. Even more than Sapiens, a goddamn book about being a human. Josh's deep dive into iZombie is a rough road ahead. So buckle your seatbelts, passengers, and protect your tasty purple coils. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. So before we really get going today, I do want to uh, shout out to the audience and you know, the whole reason we started this show is because you and I love to trade content recommendations back and forth. And you and I did this with our friends for years and years, but I want to hear from the people listening to the show. If any of these recommendations on the show have encouraged you to like check out a new movie or a book or a video game or something that you either hadn't heard of before you're on the fence about. So please contact us at, the Content Clearing House uh, on social media, uh, on Instagram and Facebook at The Content Clearing House or contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. Or if you know us, just contact us directly and uh, let us know if the show is working and put in your uh, message if you want us to read it on the air. We will. We'll shout you guys out. Yeah, just just send me a TikTok before it gets banned forever. That's the best way to reach <laughs> yeah. me, the Chinese spy app TikTok. Exactly. And then everyone in China will also know what your favorite content recommendation is. <laughs> Perfect. So what do you uh what do you have going on today for the off top, Brad? Dude, I'm so excited. Some to... weird photo earlier. Yeah. Uh I'm really excited to talk about this. I've been sitting on this for a while. Have you heard of Ventablack? Is that the blackest pigment on earth? Yeah, okay. It's it's actually not a pigment. It is a material. Uh, it is a technology. But uh, so you are somewhat familiar. Are you familiar with the the um, uproar, the the wild controversy that has been caused by Vanta Black? No, I did not know there's any controversy about it. I just kind of knew about its existence. So lay yeah. it on me. Yeah, so before we get into it, I, um, talking about Vantablack a little bit, the, this material, it's a super black material. It's created by a nanotube company, uh, Surrey Nanosystems in the United Kingdom. So this English company started really making the best material. Now, the, these super black materials go back to like 2007, but wh what they did, Surrey, they made their version at a lower temperature which was easier to produce. And what it is, it's these vertically aligned nanotubes, these like carbon 
pylons that capture light perfectly. And we're not just talking visible light. We're talking from, from ultraviolet to infrared. So the photons just get into these nanotubes and they bounce around, you know, millions of times, something like that. And then it disperses as heat and there's like no reflection at all. It's this like new class of super black coatings. Is it like a, can you spray it on? Well, how's it applied? The original was like grown in this chemical process and it, it really wasn't a spray on it. It wasn't really accessible to anybody, which is probably why you didn't hear about this. Uh, despite it being like super crazy. I mean, it's like hydrophobic. Um, it's, very high thermal it has this high thermal shock resistance i guess they plunged it into liquid nitrogen and then put it on like a hot plate at 200 degrees celsius it doesn't affect it um so on top of that of course the ultra low reflectance was 99.965 percent of light is absorbed so that you know think like space telescopes uh infrared cameras thermal camouflage for the military but the reason that there's this controversy is they did come up with a version that essentially does spray on. It's called Vantablock S-Viz. Uh, and basically, it, it's not as good in the infrared uh, spectrum. But visible light, it's, it's basically the same. But it's much cheaper to produce. Instead of these like tiny little nanotubes being grown perfectly vertical like blades of grass and being like super absorbent. They're more like spaghetti strands. I mean, you don't get this in a can, right? Like you can't go to Home Depot and get Vanta Black and like shake it up. Like this is still a complicated process, but it made it a lot less complicated and it basically opened the door for artists to use this. And that's kind of where the controversy started is when they made this sprayable, it's like a robot arm. You stick your whatever in this room, put your one wheel in there and this robot arm will spray it with this, this new cheaper Vanta block. So why is that a controversy then? Is it just too dangerous to not reflect light? No. So this guy, um, Kapoor is this famous artist who had been uh, reaching out to Surrey, Anish Kapoor. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing mispronouncing that. Oh my gosh. It's great that I have a radio uh, podcast show here. So Anish Kapoor had been calling uh, the nanosystems company, Surrey Nanosystems, as soon as they came out with Vantablack, but it was still kind of for aerospace, optics, whatever. Now, when they came out with that spray on version, they contacted him and they kind of said, okay, we don't really have the resources to work with a bunch of different artists. And this guy's resume seemed perfect for this application. I mean, this guy's super famous. He's done all these like crazy art installations. You, you probably know that reflective bean thing in Chicago. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I've got a lot of the basic classic photos you get when you go there. Totally. Yeah, like the, you know, kind of the magic funhouse mirror, but just, I think it's called like Cloud Bean, if I remember correctly. I'm, anyway. It is a crazy installation. It is. It's really cool. I mean, so this guy is, he's not just like, he, he doesn't just have knighthood 
in uh, the UK. He doesn't just have, you know, this like exceptional resume, but he also works with like light and and dark and is all about the chromatic spectrum and he's all about the voids and experimenting with the void. So, you know, this nanosystems company was like, all right, we'll work with you. And then they signed a contract to give Kapoor exclusive rights to Vanta Black, and the rest of the art world went totally nuts. And they kind of said like, you know, okay, you, you, you basically are, uh, holding exclusive rights to this and you're keeping all the other art. I don't know. It's like, he's keeping it all to himself basically. So the, that that's the controversy is just the other artists can't get it. And it's not like, it's not like they're trying intentionally to hold it back. They just don't have the resources to mass produce it. It sounds like exactly, exactly. I mean, they, they definitely, you know, and it, what's weird about this too, as far as I can tell, and my main source for this was a wired article. It's fantastic. It's called art fight. I'm going to put a whole bunch of links in the show notes to different things about Vanta black, because you know, you, it's just like you can tell even in a picture how unsettling and weird things look when they're painted with Vanta Black. Like a lot of the things you'll see, like they have tin foil, which is obviously super reflective, and they'll crumple it up so you see all the like corners and whatnot of the of the tin foil surface, and then a section of it will be painted with Vanta Black, and it looks uh, photoshopped. I mean, it does not look real. And so I can't even imagine what it looks like in person because obviously we're just looking at a picture of it. Right. So you don't get that like same sense of like the, the objects just not, ref- not really existing because there's no light being reflected back into your eye. But yeah, the, it really yeah. is like the, the contour and the texture is what makes something seem real. It's like in CGI, you know, like, they spend so much time working on like the specular maps, which is the reflection highlights, and then like the uh, the the relief map, which shows all the little details. And when like that picture you sent me earlier, it was like a little bust of a head, and then it was painted with what is it? V- Vanta black. Vanta black. Yeah, it's one word, and the Vanta and- is like kind of a. Uh, word soup acronym style for the vertically aligned nanotubes, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah. But I thought like when you sent me that picture, I was like, you know, my first thought was like, okay, it, it looks like this blackest black pigment thing, but also it looked like a weird Photoshop image. And I was like, I don't know exactly what you're getting at with this, but in my mind, Hey, I guessed right. It was uh, the Vanta black is what I was thinking of. Right. But it exactly. looks so fake. It does, dude. I, I, I really want to see something coated with this material. But, you know, what's, what's he going to do with it? Um, so the, one of the things that he has made is this $95,000 watch called the Sequential One S110 Eco Vanta Black. Um, it, it's got Vanta Black on the face. Now, he, as having exclusive rights to this, I mean, he is unveiling these. Uh, the first Vanta Black sculptures. It's going to be next year at this Venice Biennial. It's like I don't know. I'm, it's like a black hole sculpture, right? Exactly. So he's going to unveil. There's going to be an art gallery in Venice. I mean, it's going to be huge. It's going to be insane. So you know, I'm thinking, Josh, if uh, 
if we don't die of COVID this year, I think we should head to Venice and and stare into the the lightless void of his art. We'll do our first live show there. Perfect. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's go big, go big or go home. Actually, it's go big and then go home. That's my motto. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hold my helmet. Watch this. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, one thing I did want to mention that that second picture that I. Uh, texted you without context before the show so this art feud um it these artists like took to social media they went to the press they were just like you know trying to skewer this guy and it, it started giving people this wrong impression that kapoor had sole rights to use the color black which is not really <laughs> possible right like this is and so I think stupid. It's it's crazy. Like Surrey Nanosystems has like been drug into this like wild art feud, and they're just like, look, like we, like we think it's cool that somebody wants to use this stuff for art. This guy seems like the most qualified. We don't have, like, we can't do this for everybody. It's still super hard to manufacture, and it's not just a color, right? Like it's this crazy carbon tube. Well, anyway, this younger uh and also less famous artist Stuart Stuart Semple uh, he's also British he was giving a talk uh right here at the Denver Art Museum Denver represent right um totes so he was asked what his favorite color was and he just said van to black and I can't use it and then the audience member followed up with uh, and they probably said it in a voice like well what are you gonna do about it and <laughs> I'm, in the Brett New York accent? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody with a terrible New York accent happened to be in Denver that day. But um, he replied that he's going to release his special pink, but he's not going to allow Anish Kapoor to use it. So this guy, Semple, made this ultra fluorescent pink that he calls the pinkest pink. He started selling it on his website for five bucks, but it was more like a performance piece. He wasn't planning on people buying it, and it was to display this warning that was like, if you are Anish Kapoor, affiliated to Anish Kapoor, going to purchase this on behalf of Anish Kapoor, think that this pink could somehow get in the hands of Anish Kapoor, you cannot purchase this. And It's like what, the No Homers Club on The Simpsons. The No, the no Homers Club? I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah, they had a... They had a no homers club, and he's like, well, what about this other homer? And they're like, it's no homers club. We're allowed to have one. It was oh just a club just to, just to keep out Homer Simpson. That's funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not the Anish Kapoor. I'm just another Anish Kapoor. So... <laughs> It's a pretty awesome little uh, spiteful maneuver, though. Dude, I kind of I like this. Like, I totally yeah, get, that's awesome. I I totally leave it get, to artists. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, well, the the funny thing is that the internet just kind of like grabbed this story by the balls, right? Five thousand jars of this pinkest pink <laughs> were sold. Simple had to get his family to like help grind the ingredients and fill these orders um and then this hashtag share the black caught on and it's basically all these like artists and they they would buy this pinkest pink they would use it in their art and then they would post art and say share the black so it was all to like get anish kapoor riled up and um you know it hasn't really done anything (laughs) right 
But you know what they need to do is yeah. they need to donate the proceeds from this pink is pink to the makers of Vanta Black so they can produce more Vanta Black and then everyone can have it. Yeah. I don't know if that's how things work, but I that's good in theory. That doesn't sound like how spite typically works, right. though. Right. Well, what is cool, though, Simple did end up making a blacker black. It it does not involve a team of engineers. Um, it is. So that is actually a pigment. And it's like some kind of combination of like black pigment, which is finely ground carbon. But to remove the sheen, like I guess coal has this like refractive effect. And so it has this sheen. He kind of crowdsourced this issue and some other artists told him about this transparent silica mattifier and it would make it like super matte. Like it would like evenly reflect it and cut some of the reflection. I don't totally understand it all, but what what ended up happening, he has this, he calls it like black 2.0 or I think they're up to black 3.0 now and it's a non-toxic affordable paint. And it's not quite Vanta Black, but it does disrupt shape recognition. So, and also, it smells like black cherry, which is a mm. nice touch. Um, so, you know, you can check out Stuart Semple's website as well. I'll, I'll link to it if you want to, like, get some, you know, Vanta Black wannabe and, and paint your one wheel. Um, and get then in on, on the spite. Get it on the spite. <laughs> Support the movement, man. Let's take <laughs> Vanta Black down. No, but uh, one more thing before I finish my off top. I do not think Kapoor um, had any part in this, but uh, BMW did manufacture a X6. It was the first Vanta Black car. And that does a- not sound like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> that does not sound street legal. Visible car that doesn't reflect headlights. I'm I'm getting an idea for some uh, children's Halloween costumes, but uh, if you had a Vanta black one wheel, dude, you would look like you're hovering at night. Turn the is, headlight off. That is true. That is true. Dope. Yeah, maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll get on Simple's site because I you know no one no one can get a hold of this Vanta black and unless you're Anish Kapoor. So, but yeah, that's it, man. Vanta black. I got. I'm gonna add a ton of links to the show notes. You gotta check it out. It's it's really wild stuff. Like it it definitely is just one of those um, technologies that has improved so rapidly that it went from being like, okay, this new stuff is so crazy, it's going in space telescopes. Oh, now we can put it on a car. Oh, now it's in a watch. Oh, now we're just gonna like paint pictures with it and piss off artists. Like I I just love that like story arc for some reason. It's just so classic. It's classic human. Classic human. I like, I like hearing about that because you know that's the kind of thing that you run across on the internet, and you're you know aware of the idea that this black pigment that doesn't reflect light or whatever nanotubes, whatever it is, exists. But I didn't really dig deeper into it. Didn't understand, you know, that it was some kind of crazy technology like that. So that's awesome, that's man. And the story arc is good. Yeah, yeah, buddy. <laughs> Thanks so wh- for that, man. Yeah. So what's on your uh, your content circuit lately? Oh, man. Well, I finished the uh, show, the MMA show. I was watching Kingdom with Frank Grillo. And again, I would recommend it to everyone, even if you don't like MMA. Uh, but I, did, I just watched this documentary on Netflix 
called Tread. Have you seen this? I have not. So it's about the uh, the killdozer in uh, Granby, Colorado in 2004. Oh, yeah. So this guy, Marvin Hemeyer, you know, the, the documentary kind of starts off like you're hearing these tapes from him. He recorded all of his like rantings. In the beginning, you're like, oh, yeah, it kind of makes sense. I could see why you're mad. And then you start hearing like everyone else's perspective and you're like, oh my God, this guy is just totally nuts. But he has like a slight against the city of Granby and he has a a bulldozer that he outfits with. I mean, I'm sure everyone has seen this on the, you know, this has been around for years and this is national news, but he outfits the dozer with steel plates sandwiched around concrete and basically creates like a bulletproof killdozer. And he just like, it looks like Godzilla goes through the town when he's done with the town of Granby. It is absolutely fascinating. And the footage is stuff that, you know, if you, you just can't believe it's real watching it. So I would definitely recommend uh, Tread. Did, did they like dive into his motivations at all? I don't really remember. They have all, all of these cassette tapes that he recorded that are, it's basically his entire brain just like barfed out onto these tapes that I, you know, he'd been recording it for like months and months before he went on his rampage. So you get like a really in-depth look at where he's coming from, but then you also get a good look at the city's point of view. And you're just, I came away from it just thinking like, this is a little bit of an overreaction, buddy. Yeah. He's like, I am tired of paying this parking ticket. For the second time. Now, he was mad about, um, well, he had purchased land, and then he felt that there was this other landowner that was trying to open a business near him, and he, he felt like this guy had like a personal vendetta against him and was like blocking his land's access to hooking up with the sewer lines, and he had like a... a you know, like a court case about it and it got thrown out. He just kept getting like more and more worked up and more and finding more enemies among amongst the town people. And so eventually, you know, he just, he keeps saying that like, he felt like if he wasn't supposed to do this, God would have stopped me by now. And at that point you're just like, Oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is going to go bad really quickly. Wow. Cause it's, you know, he, it's almost like he, it sounds like he, he thought he had like a, a divine mission at a certain point. And once you get there, there's just no going back. You've already started welding the killdozer together. What are you going to do? Not destroy the town. Right. That's pretty nuts, man. That's i uh, I'm definitely going to check that out. You know, I, I kind of came up with this, this weird 2020 goal. I'm not even sure I should put this out there, but Hey, what the heck? Um, so, you know, I have a Elon Musk, not, not a flamethrower. Um, I would like to ride around, on the one wheel with my flamethrower blowing flames into the air just to, I don't know, ring in the new year and just like, um, just kind of bid 2020 idea in a, in a unique and 2020 esque sort of way. But I don't know. It's kind of making me feel like it's the one step towards the kill toaster. <laughs> well, you don't sound particularly armored, so I think that if you start getting out of hand, they'd be able to take you down pretty easily. Yeah, somebody on we a one wheel. We already talked about how the very easy the one to wheel. Take down. 
Yeah, it's not the ideal purge vehicle, so. <laughs> that's true. Well, that's crazy, So what about man. you, man? Um, I'm reading a book right now. You've you've might have might have heard the, heard of the author. You've all know a Harari. His, Who? <laughs> you know the content clearinghouse's most mentioned man. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that does that does ring a bell now, actually. Yeah. After I finish this book, it's his third book. Uh, it's called Twenty One Lessons for the Twenty First Century, and it's a little bit different of a style and format and tone than Sapiens and Homo Deus. And uh, I'm super pumped about it, man. I've been I've been waiting to finish my last book so I could get into this. And then after I finish this book, I don't know how I'll be able to fit Yuval Noah Harari into a conversation um, or on the podcast more than like two or three times an episode. So It's going to be a stretch, Brett, but based on uh, knowing you for years, I have a feeling that you'll be able to work in your favorite thing to any conversation. <laughs> Life will find a way. <laughs> yeah, Brett will find a way. <laughs> well, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back from the break, Josh uh, is going to surprise me with some content. Ooh, content. The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas you've been to. They offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box, or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you with that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Parks map. Now it's covered in pins because, well, you know, Bree and I get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there and done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. <gasps> Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. <whistles> For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. Clear it out. All right, welcome back to the content clearinghouse. So just like Josh, besides a couple of pictures with no context, had no idea what I was going to talk about for the off top. I have no idea what Josh is going to talk about for his content. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to hear about it. I, I really hope it involves Vanta Black and One Wheels, but we'll see. Well, once, once again, the audience is ahead of you, Brett. They already know. So I'm going to talk about little piece of content. It's a little obscure. It's called iZombie. 
And I know what some of you might be thinking. I'm not talking about the 2015 network TV comedy drama about a girl that becomes a zombie and then uses her zombie powers to help the police solve crimes. And I know that sounds like language barf, but apparently it's a real thing. I actually actually did watch that show. I'll be honest with you. (sighs) Brett. (laughs) Like two seasons of it. Despite its 91% rating on Rotten Tomato, I absolutely refuse to watch it. So I'm just going to assume it's terrible. If it's uh, if it's good, Brett, you just keep it to yourself. I don't want it to taint my uh, my idea of what iZombie can be. Okay. Forget <laughs> actually, I brought it up. <laughs> did you like it? I did. I did actually oh, like it. Damn but it. It, it, didn't, <laughs> it didn't get its hooks in me like other content. Okay. I was probably in a dark, uh, dark time in my life. I don't know what what excuse is going to redeem myself on our. Probably show? needed some comfort. Maybe if I get a picture of me with the flamethrower and the one wheel and the Vanta black suit, I'll forgive you. So what I'm talking about is the book by Hugh Howey that was published in 2012, and the synopsis of this book from the author is as such. This book contains foul language and fouler descriptions of life as a zombie. It will offend most anyone, so proceed with caution or not at all. And be forewarned, this is not a zombie book. This is a different sort of tale. It is a story about the unfortunate, about those who do not get away. It is a human story at its rotten heart. It's the reason we can't stop obsessing about these creatures in whom we see all too much of ourselves. And it's true, this book is absolutely disgusting. It features some of the most horrendous descriptions of gore and viscera that I've ever read. As an example, the phrase purple coils is something that you'll read multiple times in this book when referring to intestines, which to me is just like the grossest way to refer to intestines. Purple coils just sounds so nasty. But uh, this... This book is not a story or a tale about like survival or the human spirit dominating in the face of adversity like a lot of like apocalyptic stories are. This is a story that's told from the perspective of the zombies and these dead people are forced to consume the flesh of other humans by this compulsive hunger that both disgusts them and satisfies them at the same time. If it was if it was just that, you know, it'd, it'd still be a little played out. But what makes it so fascinating is that this book, uh, in this book, the zombies retain all of their old memories, all of their previous desires and human thoughts. They are fully conscious and aware of what they're doing. They're simply locked into their zombified bodies. So it's like they are a passenger on a ride along with the zombie virus as it's forcing them to pursue and kill all the humans around them. And they, they're fully aware of how they died. They know all the damage that they've taken since they've become zombified. They can still feel pain and they can understand the horror of what's happening to them. And they know exactly what they're causing. And that is such an amazing concept that I've never seen done anywhere else. Interesting. So they're, they're not just like, uh, you know, we think of zombies as just being these mindless uh, beings and that's always kind of part of the storytelling trope in like a zombie movie or a zombie a zombie show like The Walking Dead is it's like they have to reach this point where it's like you know that's not your mother anymore that's not your sister that's not your brother 
that's just a zombie and you're going to have to, you know, put them down. Like they, they're not in there anymore. Like this is basically the opposite. Like you are still Josh. You have all your memories of recording the content clearing house, but since you got this virus, you, you are now compelled to uh, feast on purple coils and you have Ugh. your consciousness intact, but you can't stop yourself because you're afflicted with this like rabies zombie like driving force. Is that am I getting this correct? Well, sort of. I mean, it's they are typical zombies. And what's so interesting about this is it's just like it's like Cabin in the Woods. You can overlay this format and this idea onto any zombie fiction that you watch, you know, like you won't be able to help, but once you read this book, overlay it onto the walking dead or train to Basan or Dawn of the dead or the last of us, all of those from the outside, you know, they all appear to be a typical zombie. And in this book from the outside, they all appear to be a typical zombie. And as far as, you know, their body, them being alive or dead, you know, they're, typical zombie they're dead they have no life function except for the zombie virus controlling their body but the interesting thing is that the humans are their memories are there but there's no control there's no there's no real indication that they are who they used to be except for their own perspective and them viewing the world through the zombie eyes they can their, still remember everything that happened. Their internal world basically exactly. is like intact. Oh my god, they're locked in, and it, I mean it really is like they're on a ride along with basically like the worst driver in history. Well, that sounds uh, that sounds very unique, and it also sounds extremely disturbing. Oh, dude, it's hard to read when you're eating, but it's also so fascinating. And so, what I'm going to talk about, like. There will be some spoilers, but it, it kind of it's kind of a disingenuous word for discussing the details of this story. You know, it's this book is more like a force of nature than a narrative tale. It's something that really needs to be experienced, and no amount of previous information is really going to prepare you for you know what's in store for you when you're reading it. And it's not particularly scary in like a traditional sense, but you know the true horror really lies in how you will view zombie horror in the future how you'll use this book as a lens to view all of those other stories and just like cabin of the woods like you won't be able to help yourself but go back and think about like oh my god walking dead think about this okay like you think about all the scenarios the zombies and the humans have been in and then you start overlaying this formula and it makes you want to go back and like rewatch all that material interesting you know, this is kind of this is kind of reminding me of like the, and I you know I'd have to look this up. I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard that when a Democrat is in office, vampire literature and entertainment is more popular. And then when a Republican uh, president is in office, zombie literature is more popular and it's like this weird cycle that you can trace back for 20 years. Have you, have you heard about this? No, that seems like a very bizarre correlation though. Yeah. And it, and it has, you know, the, the like theory about it is that there's, I don't know. It's like there, what the, our fears are like the fears of our collective unconscious of like, 
okay, the Democrats are like gonna, you know, uh, they're blood sucking, like going to tap the resources. Of totally makes sense. The working class, but then it's like, oh, the Republican is like he's got these hordes of mindless zombies. And so there's like some sort of symbolism or representation, but I wonder if there's like a metaphor being explored here that we can like, I don't know, imagine ourselves as zombies or like, cause sometimes, I mean, you know, I've talked about mindfulness meditation on the show before. Like sometimes I wake up while I'm doing something and I'm like, Whoa, you know, I'm, I'm lost in thought. I'm driving and I like am not paying attention at all. I'm just going through the motions while I have this internal dialogue. If that internal dialogue is me, uh, like I, I am kind of trapped in a zombie body until I wake up and I have full control over my faculties. And obviously the characters in the this book do not. But do you think there's like some symbolism there? I mean, when you put it that way, that that correlation makes a lot of sense. That sounds like something you need to look up and see if you find a link for, because I would love to see an article about that. that yeah, that's actually to, really interesting. I'll have to seek it out. I've, I feel like that's come up before more than once. So there's gotta be something to it. I, I don't think it's just like fake news. I remember seeing, reading that like five plus years ago. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Look into that for sure. Cause I want to see that. So this novel, it's written in an anthological manner. It, it's follow the, following experiences of several different characters. They're all zombified under, under different circumstances. And, you know, like I said before, it's not really a zombie story. It's more of a story about the human condition wrapped in a zombified package. It's a story about the human mind's ability, ability to distract itself and justify its own actions and self-loathing and regret. It's, uh, you know, it covers a lot of bases as as it's exploring the human mind like one character passes the time by trying to remember the names of all these different animal groups and types and decides that the group of uh, a group of zombies should be called a shuffle so for the rest of the book any uh any story told from that character's perspective she's talking about like the shuffle of zombies and that's just like her word for the horde oh i like and then that. one character is a junkie and he needs you know, he needs like a fix of heroin and his fix of human flesh. And I honestly can't think of anything more horrifying than, you know, being trapped in a zombie body and having like this, these two conflicting cravings and being able to like, you know, kill people and eat them. And you get like your, your fill of purple coils. And then you still feel like the draw for, you know, some powerful substance that has a hold of your mind. Cause I always think about, you know, like, you know, like when people are addicts and then something, you know, they, they lose their life in some tragic way and people are like, Oh, their, their troubles are over, you know? And it, it just seems like one of the, one of the worst things I can imagine is if you wake up in whatever the afterlife is and your neural wiring is still calibrated to need whatever that earthly substance was. There's no way you're getting it now. You're just a you're you know, you're just an energy form, but you're like cursed for eternity to feel that way. And that's like, you know, they explore that in this book through this heroin junkie zombie. Huh. Wow. There's, that's that's pretty dark. <laughs> that's darker than dude, Man to Black. 
it is this is the Vanta Black of books, buddy. Oh yeah. There I is like no that. no light reflecting off of these pages. Oh, good one, dude. Man, I you love like what that? I I do like that. That's a good one. I think they call that waxing poetic. Ah, yes. I I love what our our off top like matches the uh the content and we didn't even plan it, folks. We didn't plan yeah, it. We just got those coordinated brains. That's right, TDCS. So there's a another character. He's wrestling with the knowledge in his mind about how to open doors. He's trying to prevent like his zombified side from gaining access to that information. And it's not really, it's not really made clear whether he feeds that information to the zombie, but eventually like his zombie body is able to get the door open. And there's like, you know, loved ones on the other side of the door, which is like a, a really terrifying scenario to think that you might be able to feed that the monster information that works against your own personal interests. It's just a, it's all such interesting perspective on the zombie genre, which I'm sure is something that many people would consider to be played out by now. But when you view it through this lens, it just really it really revitalizes the entire genre of fiction, at least for me. Yeah, I, I feel like the the first wagon with four wheels on it that was being pulled by an ox, somebody that didn't understand how life works looked at that and they're like, well, that's the pinnacle of technology when it comes to wheeled devices nothing will ever beat the wheeled wagon and i i feel like it's the same thing with any good storytelling format or like uh i don't know this 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 like platform for exploring ideas like if you have enough creativity and you have some really good ideas like i mean space stuff zombie stuff vampire stuff uh, how many chicken soul for the soup books are there, for God's sakes? That's a be- terrible example. Way too many. <laughs> there, are, there are too many of those. Way too many for us to cover here, folks. <sighs> but yeah, I, I, I can't imagine, like, dude, I would dive into some good zombie entertainment any time. If you told me it was good, I am ready for it. God, I never get sick of it. That's why this is the second piece of zombie material we've covered here. Yeah. Two out of twenty-two episodes, I believe it is. It's a, uh, yeah. You do the math because I can't. <laughs> that's uh that's one more than any other subject that we've covered. <laughs> that's that is true. So what's, you know, what's cool about these these stories is there is kind of like a mystery when you're looking at the zombie hordes. You know, it's like it's easy to just see them as this living wave or un you know undead wave this thing that just like wants to crash over you and consume you but there's also like the mystery of like you know what's causing this virus to control these people you know what is it like is your life snuffed out are you still in there and it it kind of made me think about like whenever I was a kid I used to be so scared of the Bermuda Triangle which is like the stupidest thing ever when you're growing up in Texas and you're 600 miles from the ocean. But what really scared me about it was the idea that someone could just disappear without a trace and then no one would ever know what happened to them. But I also had this thought that if you did disappear, the mystery for you would be solved. 
And in some crazy way, you'd have this closure on one of the world's most insane mysteries, even if it was for only a second. And that's how the book makes me view zombie fiction. You know, it's like a peek behind the curtain of what's happening in these hordes. It made me realize that, you know, if this is the way the lore works, that the zombies may literally be screaming out in their minds, hoping that, you know, the, the sniper would take them out in particular, you know, like blow their head off just so they get a release from the living nightmare that they're in. But there, you know, there still could be a human side in there and that human side would be terrified of the idea of their little flame of conscious consciousness being snuffed out, even if it is trapped inside this like walking horror show. So it's a really interesting confliction and it's a really interesting way of looking at it, you know, like another bit of like the zombie lore mystery is solved. And if you obsess over zombie lore, like I do, it's just a, it's like another little piece of the puzzle that I didn't even know I was missing until I read this book. You know, the, my version of that is if I could drop into a black hole because I have read so much when I was a kid, I was just fascinated by the predictions of what would happen if, you know, from your perspective, you would see everything speed up around you. Like you'd see time speed up and time wouldn't really change for you. Cause this was all part of Einstein's, relativity right so time is relative and you see time passing normally except you're looking out and you happen to have a great telescope you're looking at earth and you just see like you know time speeding up but if you're in the spaceship outside the black hole and you see brett falling in you just see me like get slower and slower and slower and then kind of fade to red as i get like shredded into long you know strands of spaghetti but it happens like a million years later I don't know. I, I'm so curious by stuff like that, that it's like, I might just sacrifice myself into a, uh, into a black hole to solve that mystery. That's my Josh, what's happening in a zombie's head, uh, Brett version. That's a good one, man. It's like yeah. exactly that kind of thing where it just, right. you know, like, like, I don't want to die, but if I got to go into a black hole, you know, I'd be first human in history to have that mystery solved. Even if I couldn't, uh, couldn't get Tell that anybody. information out to anyone yeah exactly yeah i would i would definitely think about it <laughs> this that's that's good man uh this book also made me think about you know like our concept that you know our crew talks about the life pilot you know the it's kind of like the the philosophy of our bodies being these vehicles that we're piloting through the physical and mental realm and how difficult tasks and pushing ourselves and learning you know, learning things like how to skydive or becoming wind tunnel instructors or overcoming adversity, you know, all these things make us these better pilots. And it really is like the ultimate horror to think about the pilot being stripped away, having like this virus or whatever it is inside you become like your new life pilot. Because I think, you know, people that are into, you know, these physical pursuits that we're always talking about, part of what makes those things so valuable to us is learning new ways to pilot these bodies and learning new ways to like manipulate the form of being a human doing things like flying through the sky where humans are not meant to be, you know, that those are all the things that are like kind of at the core of the human experience. And it's a, it's a, it's like a very cerebral type of horror that can make you think about, that being stripped away, but you still being like sitting in the back seat. Hmm. 
You know that this uh, this reminds me of something else. Actually, a news story I heard like a very long time ago, over a decade ago, about a woman who was getting surgery on her stomach, and the anesthesiologist gave her, you know, whatever chemical it was, so that she was not moving. She could not respond, but the chemical that was supposed to knock her out either I don't, know, I don't know what the issue was but she You're making was me shiver over here buddy dude dude i remember like this I, I saw this on the news when i was a kid i'm pretty sure this is another one i'll have to dive into and see if i can find but i guess it's it's not like incredibly rare like it's not the only time it's happened but this one was the one that i heard about and it really stuck out for me she was it was like a 10-hour surgery or something ridiculous and she was 100 percent aware conscious she could hear she could feel everything but she could not move she could not respond she couldn't say anything like her you know heart rate was the same like there's no indications as she's going through this excruciating pain there's no way for her to tell the doctor that she's like still awake and i just can't imagine like what kind of trauma you know that would um inflict on somebody's mind yeah probably dude i mean that's it you would essentially yeah you, it would be uh, being tortured for ten hours, you know, right. having like your having your body cut open and being able to like feel it and hear them discussing like their stupid dinner plans or whatever the doctors right. are talking about while they're operating on you. Right? Have you guys heard yeah, about Banta Black? So horrifying. Dipping yeah. my one wheel in it tonight. Oh, right on, John. <laughs> Man, that is terrifying. It's kind of like uh, have you heard of locked in syndrome? Which yes. is uh, yes, I have cerebromedullospinal disconnection. I believe I just pulled that out of the top of my head. Nice. Uh, so it's like this: it's this rare neurological disorder where you have complete paralysis over all of your voluntary muscles, except for the ones that control your eyes for some reason. And then individuals with locked-in syndrome are conscious and fully awake, but they have no ability to produce movement outside of the eye movement and they cannot speak the the scary thing though is that the, their cognitive function is completely unaffected i mean can you imagine like just being you know there's a precedent for like what this story is based on in real life right but being locked into your body and being conscious like that you know like during that operation like all day every day oh my and just gosh. having having no way to communicate or let anyone know if you're even there People would eventually just assume that, you know, you're just a vegetable. They would just, you know, they would just go about their day as if you're not there or maybe like, you know, be angry with you for the burden that you're causing them. And I'm wow. sure you get like lashing out against you for things that are like completely out of your control. That so is like a... How did they know the people with locked in syndrome, how do they figure out that they are, they still have their like cognitive abilities i mean it, are they looking at brain waves or do people like wake up from it at some point i don't know much about it well i think some of them can communicate like with devices that track eye movement i think that's one way that they have confirmed that people are still you know conscious and there. Mm, you know like maybe okay. like an, an eye tracking keyboard or something i'm not sure about that but i would imagine that if you can still control your eyes then eventually there would be someone that's you know able to communicate in that manner. Do this? Uh, do they know what causes locked-in syndrome? 
Uh, it's from what I understand, it's caused by damage to the part of the brainstem that contains these nerve fibers that relay information to other areas of the brain. So kind of like mm. the bridge version of your brainstem. Wow. That's crazy, man. That sounds just terrifying. And like a little bit closer to home is the idea of like becoming a quadriplegic, you know, paralyzed. Right. When I was, yeah. when I was a kid, we used to visit this, uh, this guy that was in our church he was he was a quadriplegic that had been paralyzed in a body surfing accident and he was you know he he was surfing just like on his stomach hit the coral paralyzed himself someone pulled him out of the water and he was he was young when that happened i think like in his 20s and you know we would go and visit him and we would like bring him food my dad would like sit and talk to him and i was like i don't know maybe 8 or 9 but I just remember like from a very young age that really had an impression on me about how important it is to protect yourself. Cause I would, you know, I wasn't like super into action sports at the time, but you know, I was like super, I was active and I was like climbing trees and stuff, but it really like that had an impact on me at a young age of just like, you're not allowed to fall. You're not allowed to get hurt. You cannot, you cannot get into these like, untenable situations and i you know it's kind of affected the way that i've gone about like pursuing skydiving in you know in my adulthood that 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 impact has never left me yeah i mean it it's a tough situation though because if you if it if you feel like it's untenable to be injured in that regard then i mean you just can't do action sports like that i mean it's kind of like the relationship that I feel like I'm trying to foster with coronavirus cases being on the rise, you know, I I don't want to live in fear. I still want to go to the grocery store. I'm going to see friends. I'm going to take every necessary precaution. I'm going to try to be smart and safe. But if I didn't want to get sick at all and I didn't want to get anyone else sick, I would just lock myself away like I did for the first couple months of this. Right. So I think there's like a happy medium that we can come to where it's like definitely wear a mask in public, wear a helmet skydiving, you know, don't downsize canopies too quickly. Don't go to a MAGA rally without your mask on. You know, the like we can find ways to mitigate these things. But I guess that is, you know, in the heat of the moment, it's probably a not a bad thing to have that virus in your mind of just like, okay, I cannot like fuck up to a point that's going to, to end my ability to walk like that. That's, I don't know. That might not be a bad thing to have in the back of your mind, I guess. And you know, the, those situations can also be completely out of your control. So you have to, you know, if you're going to do something like an action sport, you have to make some sort of agreement with yourself that you're willing to take a certain level of risk. But you also, you know, you want to, you want to have kind of like that check in your mind where like, there's a line I'm not going to cross. I'm not going to take certain risks, you know, certain risk versus reward is not worth it. But yeah, it's like, you're saying like you, it's like what everyone always says, you could get hit just crossing the street. You know, like there's, there's a certain level of danger and mortality to being a human that you just, you can't avoid. So I don't think that, you know, locking yourself in your room or not doing action sports is the answer by any means, but I think it's good to have influences like that, especially at a young age 
where you just start to take kind of like a, a more measured approach to things. Cause when you're young, you just feel like you're invincible. And then when yeah. you're forced to, to face the reality of something like that, you're like, Oh my God, this is what can happen to a human body. And this is what I need to try to avoid with everything in my being. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and I feel like I'm going through like a weird personal evolution with this because I went from, you know, being a hardcore, like base jumper, skydiver, like action sports enthusiast, hanging out with the likes of you and Derek and Mike to basically deciding, you know, to selling my gear to just like traveling was what I did. And, you know, 2020 this summer, I've be, be kind of, I've become just fascinated on getting back into action sports. And I started skydiving again. And now I'm one wheeling, which I feel like is, uh, you know, not the safest activity, but I also at 31, I have this like strong sense of self-preservation because I do not want to be locked into, uh, into a body that doesn't function. Right. But I still want to pursue these things and I'm happy I'm pursuing these things. So it's strange because I did not have this same strong sense of like, not just self-preservation for my life, but like, I don't even want to twist my ankle right now, dude. Like, I don't want to like skin my elbow. I don't have time for that shit. You know what I mean? It's called not being a early 20 something anymore. It's like you're right. Believe me, the older you get, the less invincible you feel until eventually you feel like you're anti invincible and you got to take, start taking precautions that never would even occurred to you when you're in your early twenties. Samuel Jackson in uh, Unbreakable, Mr. Glass. Exactly. You start yeah. to feel like Mr. Glass. Yeah. I'm getting there, buddy. Like another, another thing that's really interesting, though, is like think about like the resilience of the human mind. You know, it's incredible, the incredible ability to adapt. Like as an example, look at Stephen Hawking, who, you know, he had ALS and he's arguably one of the greatest thinkers of our time. You know, it's almost like a, cosmic irony that such a powerful brain to be trapped in you know in a paralyzed body it it almost seems like some kind of crazy twisted superhero story and he you know he clearly didn't let that condition stop him but i can only imagine like my own sense of bargaining in that scenario i feel like the thought of being willing to trade that superior brain something that maybe unparalleled in all the billions of humans that have ever lived just for the ability to move again. And I feel like that kind of bargaining is a very, a very human thing. I think most people would go through some kind of phase like that. What do you, wow. what, how do you, how do you feel like, do you think that that kind of brain power is a worthy trade for the ability to move? Well, I'm certainly grateful for Stephen Hawking, and I find Thank his, God, yes. Yeah. I mean, he's just, you know... So it's Most uh, amazing people ever. Uh, totally. And it's like, I've never heard anybody, like, wax poetic like you just did uh, with Stephen Hawking. I mean, that's such a great point. It's like a twisted superhero story. But um, I'll be honest, like, I, I, you know, I take my mobility for granted. I'm sure most people do. I think we all do. do. And I'm yeah. definitely, you know, I, I don't think I would trade that uh, sense of normalcy and that mobility to have a supercomputer brain. Um, so I'm going to, like, try to take a couple uh, couple minutes tonight and just be grateful for having, like, 
working hands, working feet, working legs and arms. I mean, it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to, you know, just walk around. It's fantastic. I was moving my arm earlier around uh, my little baby, Violet, and I was like snaking it up and over her head and then like pointing my fingertips at her face and then like, and I was doing it like, you know, kind of around a corner. And it really, when you do things like that, sometimes you get like this flash of like how amazing your proprioception is that you can physically drive your fingertips which are like such a a small and precise part of your body like arguably like one of the most human parts of our body you know like our hands are just just so they're so amazing they're like these evolutionary engineering feats but that you can like snake them around and move them through space in these intricate patterns and direct your fingertips in a very specific way and it gave me like a sense of like you know how amazing the electrical signals are passing through my brain and down to fire the muscles that, that retract like my tendons and all this stuff. And every once, you know, every once in a while I get like those, those glimpses of how amazing and just intense it is to be a human sometimes. And that's, you know, like what you're saying, taking, you know, appreciation for having this body that I have. Yeah, that that's really cool, man. I don't think everybody like has those those moments of awareness, and I think that's something that really sets you apart. That you just like have those realizations, and it's really cool that you share them. I I wonder if in the future there will be a technology like Neuralink that we've talked about before on the show that will allow somebody with locked in syndrome or a quadriplegic to be uploaded in some kind of like virtual reality environment that will trick their brain and create a reality that is, you know, no different than ours. And they, they can experience that too. But, um, you know, I wonder if that'll be a possibility, but until then I just like want to be grateful for what I have right now. Cause it's a lot. Mobility is, uh, it's it pretty really big. is a lot and not having a zombie virus. That's pretty big too. That's great. You know, uh, another kind of thought I had about this book is like why humans are so obsessed with the end of the world, you know, like, especially like in the time we're living now, we're kind of, we're kind of facing when we look back on it, it's going to, you know, it's going to be something that people write about as like this great pandemic and this great threat that faces the world. But like, while we're in it, it kind of feels like, oh, this is the boring apocalypse, you know, but you know, that started making me think like, why are humans so obsessed with this idea? You know, I think zombie stories are so popular because it's easy to imagine ourselves in one of these apocalyptic scenarios as the survivor, you know, deep down, like as humans, we know that we didn't evolve as an animal to work in an office job or like manage our finances or to vacuum the carpet you know, those are all actions of a domesticated being, but that need to like run and hunt and survive is buried deep in our souls. And zombie fiction offers a glimpse into an apocalyptic future where those basic human desires are forced to be satisfied. You know, like you have to live like an animal in this zombie jungle or you end up dying horribly or end up locked into one of these, you know, terrible predator bodies. And this book really makes you look at the end of the world from the other side, you know, like the side that most of us would likely end up on anyways, the chances that 
any individual one of us who ended up being the hero in these stories and live this this crazy survivor life is very slim. Most of us would end up part of this horde. And we would we most likely, you know, as a, a human with the kind of minds that we all have in this 21st century world, most likely all be torn to pieces because we didn't act fast enough to save someone that we love that had been bitten or we'd make some minor mistake, you know, born of like our 21st century comfort. And, you know, in no time at all, this horde of zombies would cover the earth and it would be made up mostly of us. Dude, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, very interesting because in Sapiens, I won't even say the author's name, but, the author of Sapiens, most who? mentioned Wait. man. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I know who you're talking about. Say it in front of the mirror three times to make him appear. You've all know a Harari. You've all know a Harari. You've all know a Harari. There he is. He'll bring you a signed copy of <laughs> Sapiens. <laughs> don't uh, don't take our word for it. Just just do it. Um, so he talks about in Sapiens. He thinks that our our, a lot of our anxieties that are just kind of wired into our brain come from going from the middle of the food chain to the top in just a few short generations when we mastered tools and collaboration in our environment. And usually it takes species, you know, millennia to really climb the ladder, to send the ladder in this like delicate ecosystem. But you're saying that we might subconsciously crave the zombie apocalypse because we want to be back in the middle of the food chain. We want to be running from things. We want to be foraging for food, maybe in our neighbor's houses. We want to be surviving with our small tribes. I mean, yes, it, it kind of makes sense, dude. It, That's why there are video games about sense. this where you're just like, I just can't stop playing this. I love looting. Oh, my gosh. You know? I love it. That is fascinating. I, you kind of have I, me convinced. I mean, you know, like when you think about like what a human is, you know, the animal that we are, you know, we're not like the strongest or the fastest, but there is something in our brain that drives us to go out and like pursue and to move and to climb. It's, I mean, again, I know we talk about action sports probably more than you've all know a Harari, but <laughs> it's why we, it's why things like skydiving are awesome because it's, you know, it's like we don't have to be out hunting for our food and you know, it's not like a ride or die world for us necessarily. You can always just go to the grocery store and pick up something, but something like, you know, skydiving or riding the one wheel or riding motorcycles, all of those give us an outlet as a human to do something where, you know, you're like, you're riding the line of survival and your performance dictates whether you're going to go home at the end of the day. Yeah. And I, mean, I think I, that is a, that's a yeah. human need. I like. I mean, I, I I hear you, but I want to do. I want to ride the line on my own terms for for the most part. I want to control some variables. Um, so I think definitely I'm gonna, I'm gonna enjoy. That's the 21st century talking. Running from the zombie hordes. Yeah, definitely. But, I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily trade the life I have for the zombie apocalypse because, like I said, you and I would probably both be zombies. But it gives it gives us a way. You know, fiction like this gives us a way to imagine that world and to project ourselves into it. And then the actions that we take in this world, the, you know, the, the physical challenges we pursue give us a way to 
actually, you know, work that, that need out as a human being in the physical world. Absolutely. Yeah. So in my opinion, there's really never been another piece of zombie fiction that allows you to peek into what it could be like on the bad guy's side of things. You know, that's, this is a glimpse behind a curtain that until I read Hugh Howey's I Zombie, I didn't even know had been pulled over my eyes. I just always kind of saw the zombies as the faceless hordes, but now I can't look at it any other way. So for that reason, like I feel like I Zombie to be essential reading for anyone interested in the zombie genre. So it's available right now on Amazon. It's a, there's a five ninety nine Kindle version. Or there, you can get it for free right now with an Audible trial. But you know, I would really recommend everyone to purchase it because you know this is a this is a self published book, and supporting the artists that make stuff like this is why we have stuff like this. This is why I try to never like torrent music or anything. I want to always buy music, especially if it's from someone who you know maybe self producing or whatever. I want. I want to support those artists and give them the motivation to keep making this stuff. So same thing, you know, five ninety nine. buy this book. If you're into zombies, it's going to change the way you look at everything from here on out. And you'll definitely be thanking Hugh Howey for that. And if you're still on the fence, something that I've never seen covered in any other piece of zombie fiction is, uh, I'm surprised it's never occurred to me, is what a zombie shit is like. And buddy... This book gives you a first-hand account, and it is nasty. Oh my god! I can't wait to give this a read. I'm, I'm nervous about it. I'm not gonna lie to you. Do it, buddy. Download it tonight, man. You oh will not man, regret it. Well, what a great deep dive into this. I mean, it definitely inspired tons of great conversation. Uh, this is why we're best buds, Josh. This was freaking awesome. I zombie, not the. Uh, mediocre show that I will admit to enjoying. Um, not the graphic novel. We're talking the book. Apparently, there's a lot. There's a lot of eye zombies out there, but this is the one that I'm gonna check out next because of you, Josh. The content clearinghouse. It's it's got me again. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening. Also, don't forget if Josh or myself, if one of us got you with one of our content recommendations and you did finally read something by Yuval Noah Harari, or you did uh, check out some great zombie content because of Josh's uh, now two. That's I looked it up. It's 9.090909 repeating percent of our content clearing house has been zombie genre related. Um, yeah. Just give us a shout uh, Instagram, Facebook at the content clearing house. We also have the website, cchpod.com. Please uh, tell your friends about the show. Rate the show. Subscribe to the show. Uh, yeah, we love making content for you. And we love sharing our favorite content with you as well. Thanks for listening. <laughs>